This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. And hello if you're listening to the podcast version of the show. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined once again by Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening, Alex. Hi, Thomas. How are you trucking? I'm trucking very nicely. <laughs> toot, toot. <laughs> and hello to special guest host, Emma Westwood, who's joining us for the very first time in the cave tonight. Emma, you're an author, journalist, freelance writer. Yes. You cover many topics, but you have done an awful lot in culture and, and the arts. Uh, I sure have. <laughs> you've written... Feel free to jump in and take over, but you, you, you've written... Uh, a book on monster movies titled yes. Monster Movies. Yeah, so you can't miss it when you look it up on Amazon. Uh, I believe it is still available. Excellent. Nice plug. That was yeah, good. how about that? Yeah. yeah I believe it's still available. Um, Us authors, we don't know anything, basically. No, that, that, that's true, actually. I'm really excited about your upcoming book, though. Me the, too. the one on David Cronenberg's The Fly, which yes. is a film very dear to me. So I will be oh. watching and I will be reading and judging. Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. What's Thomas? your connection to The Fly? Thomas, well, some I, kind I, of larval. I adore Cronenberg and I adore that film, and it's the on, one of the few Cronenberg films I haven't seen on the big screen. My only opportunity to see it was when I was getting married. So there was a point I was thinking, can I duck out of the reception <laughs> to go and, and see this? And then Josh Nelson, one of our other cave members, was actually at that wedding. In fact, he was my best man, and he, he made a point of saying the doors have been barred to stop me from ducking out to see the flies. Oh, I've never seen it, and I'm, I'm still a bit sad about Maybe that. Maybe a book launch, Emma. Maybe a screening Maybe. for the book launch. Maybe, and I, I can tell you you can renew your vows because it's a very romantic movie it so is. yeah it's a very good wedding movie put it, it that is. way it's, it's a really romantic film i yeah. you say with all sincerity but look we've got a whole bunch of other films to talk we about do. tonight emma thank you so much for joining us thank it's you for inviting me pleasure I'm, to have you on i feel very privileged and i feel very privileged to come in after that music that was beautiful music yes bernard herman's uh overture for vertigo it's been a long time since we've mentioned what that music is but um we Gorgeous. like it. We Gorgeous. like it. Start Thank the you. show with a bit of drama. <laughs> well, on tonight's show, we're going to be looking at the new Australian film by Ivan Sin, Goldstone. This is a sequel to his 2013 film, Mystery Road, featuring the return of troubled Indigenous policeman Jay Swan, who's on a new case in Outback Australia. We'll also be taking a look at Maggie's Plan, an independent American relationship drama featuring Greta Gerwig, Ethan Hawke and Julian Moore. Now, first, a couple of months ago, Tale of Tales was released in Australia on home entertainment. It also got some festival play late last year, I believe. It's the most recent film by Italian filmmaker Matteo Garoni, who is best known for his highly acclaimed 2008 film Gomorrah, a very raw examination of the devastating impact of organised crime in southern Italy. Tale of Tales couldn't be further removed stylistically as it's a lavish fantasy film loosely inspired by the fairy tales of Guillaume Battista Basile, whose stories from early in the 17th century form the basis of many stories published by the Brothers Grimm almost two centuries later. Tale of Tales tells three stories that are woven together. We have a queen who forbids her son to associate with a servant's son, a king who allows an ogre, to, to, to take his daughter away, and two old women who want to appear young to please their hedonistic king. The cast includes Salma Hayek, Vincent 
Cassell, Toby Jones and John C. Riley. Since Vincent Cassell is involved in this film, Alex, <laughs> it probably makes sense. I'm like throwing up my goats here at the mention of his name. It probably makes sense to start with you. How does this rate on the Vincent Cassell scale? On the, on the Cassellometer. It's <laughs> because he does get it on a lot it, in this film. I, I had this strange moment watching this film where when I sat down, I knew that he was in it, but then when I sat down to watch it, I actually forgot that he was in it. Um, I was very tired when I sat down to watch it. And he appears, we, we start off, I love the structure of this film. I'm going to start off by saying it's not a, an anthology. It sounds like it's an anthology because there's three separate stories. They're entwined, aren't they? I love how it weaves between them. So they're not told, it's not one story, then the second story, and then the third story. They all inter- intertwine. And I think I was so caught up with the Salma Hayek wanting a baby, eating a sea dragon. Is it a sea dragon's heart? Yes, it is. A sea monster's heart. A sea monster's heart. This exquisite story. And I was so engrossed in this story with uh, John C. Riley as the king because he's kind of the king anyway. I actually forgot that Vincent Cassell was in this film. And it cuts from this amazing story to these two kind of topless women making out. I mean, there's a little bit of a tonal shift. And then suddenly Vincent Cassell's head just pops up from the bottom of the screen and I thought, my boy's here. (laughs) (laughs) The rooting Vincent Cassell, that's what we like. (laughs) (laughs) He is here and he is fornicating. So, yeah, it's 10 out of 10 on the Vincent Cassell scale for me. It's a. Uh, I you you mentioned the sea monster. Love the sea it. monster. Yeah, I think uh, up until it had a very quiet opening, a sort of co- this nice little ponder uh, that was the the uh, the minstrels performing to the the king and queen, and then I realised that I was going to like this film when. Uh, the the wizard who came, or the charlatan wizard who came in to offer um, an opportunity for the Queen to have a baby said, hunt down a sea monster, cut out its heart and have it cooked by a virgin. And basically I knew, all right, this this film... <laughs> this is how you order in restaurants right now. This <laughs> is great, yeah, exactly. And it was the first hint of fantasy as well. And... Um, I think this film really juggled that kind of fantasy, horror and comedy really well uh, without being heavy-handed or overdosing on either component. It was excellent. I really liked it. I might have to be the sourpuss in the equation. Oh, yeah. no. There's always one. I, well, I, it's a light, not love for me. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but I, my patience wore out with this film. I found it a little bit slow and a little bit unspectacular, believe it or not. I, I made the mistake oh, that's of... interesting. I saw the trailer for this quite yeah. some time ago and all the really wild, crazy stuff, like eating giant hearts and giant fleas and all that, and, and you know, very attractive naked people having sex. All that is in, in the trailer in a gorgeous flurry of intensity. And it's all paced throughout the film with the rest of it being sort of, you know, ye olde medieval period drama. Mm. So it didn't... I, I lost interest in the film, but objectively I was really fascinated with the retelling of these very early incarnations of fairy tales. I do have a real fascination with the way fairy tales are adapted and changed throughout the ages to reflect the, the period of, of the time. And I'm not one of these people who has a problem with, say, Disney being sanitising. Disney just reflects the ideology of, of the time, and I think it's fascinating regardless of whether you agree with his politics or not. And I think there's a, a lot to be disagreeable about. But I, I enjoyed the variations of these stories, particularly the story of the girl who gets taken by the ogre, which mm. is kind of a spin on the beauty and the beast Story now, Beauty and the Beast story was originally used either to to basically victim blame and warn girls against being disobeying their father. You know, if you disobey your father, some big brute's going to grab you, and it's all over. You know, and we still see this in action films like Taken, for example. Or Beauty and the Beast is also used as a submissive 
tale. If you submit to your, your husband and, and soften him, things will work out nicely for you. I liked how that played out in this film so much more than it does in every other Beauty and the Beast variation. It's quite a complex story, and I think that the king was... Um, oh, the, what's his name? Toby Jones. Toby Jones, Toby yes. Toby Jones, Jones yep. just extraordinary scenes with him and his giant flea. Yeah. Um, they were gorgeous. And that moment of... Uh, mime basically when mm. he had the when his daughter was playing music to him and he had that that kind of flea circus it's going like a on in front Keaton of him moment almost it was, it was really it extraordinary was, absolutely and subtlety I, I really like fairy tale films but i do find we did um last year we did a french remake of beauty and the beast was it yeah, with yeah. vincent cassell as yep. well and i found that so frustrating i, wasn't like, I wanted to episode. i really wanted to love it and it just didn't hit the right mark i find that fairy tale films are a bit too glossy mm-hmm. and a bit too not even sanitized even if they're a little bit sexy there's just something so slick about them and there was something about this that really was a bit grotty that i really liked i actually liked the uh, just the interviews with the director talking about how um because when, like you said thomas when you think about uh, gomorrah and this film you can't think of two films in a way that are more opposite but he's come out and said look they're both films about mythology well, and I love the structurally overlap. they're very similar. Yeah, too, I really actually. love the yeah. overlap between the two. Um, I mean, they're very. You, I don't think you'd pick them as the same director no. if you didn't know. Um, but I really loved. I really liked how grotty this was in a way. It's sort of just a little yeah. bit dirty and a little bit. There was that that, that those really astonishing sequences. This, the very famous photo, uh, sorry, image from this film is um, Salma Hayek eating the heart. It's on the poster. Mm. I think it's just the most breathtaking image um there's also one of stacy martin i think one of the witches when she becomes young it's uh, stacy martin who was in nymphomaniac, nymphomaniac. yeah mm. and she's got this beautiful long red hair and she's naked and it's it's all very beautiful and yeah that, that, bit... I, I was glad i could pause that scene i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's very painterly uh, i mean there was thank moments. you for cleaning this up i, I just cleaning decided up to jump in this. there it's, well, that's well, enough thomas why did i go there <laughs> i started it with cassell like, <laughs> yes i'm following you if you yeah. can be sleazy so can i yeah no totally <laughs> so emma's here to keep things nice <laughs> i'm the mediator yeah it, the, just the painterly look of it was so beautiful um i mean there was uh, this uh, a scene where they hunt out the virgin and it was really it has to have been um influenced by the paintings of vermeer it was just oh, like yeah, walking definitely. into a vermeer and then that day after debauchery scene where um you know vincent cassell is kind of groping some woman's boobs and it but the the layout the actual mise-en-scene and the whole design of it looks like a Titian or Rubens or something mm. like that. Um, and the it was, Stacey Martin stuff is very pre-Raphaelite. Yeah, like it's gorgeous. Absolutely, and I think that very Italian. Being completely submerged in David Cronenberg at the moment, uh, I think it's notable that uh, the DOP was Peter Sajinsky, who has actually been shooting Cronenberg's films since Dead Ringers, and he has been uh, so sort of Cronenberg's career post um, horror. But uh, if you arguably post horror, uh, but I think that uh, his work, uh, he really needs to be acknowledged for contributing a lot to this film. And um, Matteo Garoni has used a different cinematographer before this, so um, you can see it's it's Sajinsky, Sajinsky. I've got to say it properly. Peter Sajinsky's film as well. It's yeah, very much a visual, mm. a visual feast. 
It was. And look, I did appreciate the fact it was stylishly lavish, lavish without being too busy. Like, I mean, as much as I adore Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton mm. and Tarzan Singh when the characters aren't speaking, you know, it, it wasn't quite as, you know, I, I like the fact it wasn't in your face style. It did sort of. It's sorry, I'm, I'm getting have excited. A bit of flow, yeah, yeah Tarzan Tars, Tars Singh, funnily enough, is exactly who I thought of when I was watching this. Yeah. It was like a kind of um, like Gonzo version of Tarzan Singh, or a kind of DIY Tarzan Singh. It's really what it, uh, yeah. the vibe that I got from it. I'll tell you another thing that did distract me a little bit is we had two very old characters in the film who were obviously much younger actors with a ridiculous amount of almost comedic <laughs> aging makeup, and, and they did feel young even with yeah. their old makeup. They did feel it was young. very panto. That yeah. was very very, panto. and that distracted me. Although again, I like that story. I mean, that was sort of a possible precursor to Cinderella because it's about women trying to make themselves beautiful for these. Kids. King and some of the, the horrible extreme one goes to. I mean, the way this ends actually really excited me, and yeah, it's very Cronenbergian bodily horror yep, in a, in a exactly. glorious way. And I like the fact that the king is kind of a douchebag as well, but they feel pressured to be beautiful for him. So, yeah, look, I objectively really like this film, even if I didn't maintain focus all the way through it. <laughs> I suspect that was the other way around, and I came expecting, just on the back of Beauty and the Beast last year, I was just sort of expecting a nice kind of glossy, sanitised, big star fairy tale film and I don't I don't think I got that and I think I was quite surprised and I did like mm. the way that, that the narrative kind of wove together um, yeah the- exactly you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple R in Melbourne Australia you're listening to Plato's Cave. The Myth launch was on uh, Tuesday night and, uh, full disclosure, that's, that's my place of employment. Um, but but the, the point I wanted to make is Michelle Carey, in her introduction, mentioned the recent passing of Abbas Kiristami. And, and because we are mentioning all the great contributors to, to cinema who, who ha- have died, and there are many this year, we're going to mention him as well. If you're not familiar with his work, he's a very influential if not the most influential Iranian filmmaker. He was also an artist in many other fields as well. There was a terrific exhibition of his photography at Acme, I remember, a number of years ago. Uh, His career began in the late late 1960s. He was very much part of what was called the Iranian New Wave. I think we can say his most acclaimed films happened in the 1980s and 1990s. He, He won the Palme d'Or in 97 with Taste of Cherry, and in 1999 his film The Wind Will Carry Us also met huge, uh, also received huge acclaim. He predominantly worked in Iran, but his final two films were made elsewhere, and I'm pretty sure we covered both of these on Plato's Cave. Certified Copy, which was made in Italy in 2010, which which I adored, and um, Like Someone in Love, which was made in Japan in 2012. His films, they were poetic, they were philosophical, deeply humanist, and he was a huge inspiration to not just generations of other Iranian filmmakers, but filmmakers all over the world. My my introduction to him, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this, was a taste of cherry, and it's um, pretty pretty unparalleled, I think, in my in my mind. That just the experience of seeing that film for the first time was just extraordinary. Um, I know that Cerise is quite quite the admirer as well, so I think we can give a vale in in her absence, in her honour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that. Um, I, I, I was interested to hear that uh, it was mentioned at MIF because the Abbas Kirasami has just been such a huge part of MIF. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes up a, f- a bit more during the festival. Um, and just one of those 
filmmakers that has really embodied the spirit of the festival in some ways, you know. He kind of was yeah. a fixture at all festivals, wasn't he? Yeah. And he, he came to Melbourne a number of years ago as well, which would have, I, I missed all that sadly, but he, yeah, a remarkable person. If you haven't explored his full filmography, and I certainly haven't, look, now's as good as time as ever. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Goldstone is the new Australian film by filmmaker Ivan Sen. It's a sequel to his previous film Mystery Road in that it follows lead character Jay Swan, an Indigenous policeman played by Aaron Peterson, on a new investigation. This time, Jay is looking for a missing Chinese girl in a remote mining community in outback Queensland where outsiders are not welcome. Uh, like Mystery Road, Goldstone combines many of the conventions and archetypes of the detective genre with distinctively Australian iconography and themes. The cast includes Alex Russell as the local cop who's unsure about what to make of Jay's arrival, David Golpalil as a local elder, plus Jackie Weaver, David Wenham and Tommy L- Lewis as various characters attached to the mine and many, many more. Just quickly, were, were both, both of you familiar with Mystery Road? Had you seen it? Did you like it? My only complaint about Mystery Road is that it didn't have an I in its title, so I could draw a love heart above it. I, I think Mystery Road is just an <laughs> extraordinary film. You I, and I are on the same page then. I just then. adore I, it. Yeah. I think it's close to perfect. Yeah. Like I, I really... I just... I just love it. <laughs> Along with Mad Max Fury Road, it's on par as my favourite Australian film of recent times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a heartbeat. Just wow. in a heartbeat. Okay, I'm going to be really boring and say I agree with you, <laughs> except on Mad Max Fury Road, but we won't go there because that's a whole other story and that's I know that show. would go for a whole show. Um, and I watched it uh, immediately before watching Goldstone. Okay. So I felt like... So had, you hadn't seen Mystery Road before? No. Nope. Oh, that's interesting. So you nope. watched them back to back. And I felt like it was a comma and then just moved on. So I really enjoyed that about it. I don't think you quite felt the same way about it, though, Alex. I felt that... I mean, Goldstone is a good film. Ivan Sen is a great filmmaker, renaissance man, you know, editor, does the, the soundtrack right. I mean, there's a lot going on in this film, all from this one person. Um, it felt like a sequel to me and, and all that that entails. I, I love the idea of continuing the story of uh, Peterson's character because I think he's just one of the most fascinating characters that we've seen on film in this country for a long time. I love the trajectory of his character and what happens to him and I want to see it going into more films. But as a, I mean this film for me just it, it's 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 a it's a good film but it's not Mystery Road. I I guess is the simple way to put it put it. It just didn't have the same kind of tension that that Mystery Road had for me. The I don't know whether it was just Jackie Weaver being Jackie Weaver, but it felt a little hammy. It felt very much almost like she'd sort of been cut and pasted or cut and pasted herself in from Animal Kingdom. Yeah. Um, I felt her a bit too over the top and kind of moustache-twirling villainy. Um, so I really actually... And I really like Jackie Weaver, but I did really struggle with her a bit in Goldstone. I, I She really made it a little bit of a tough, tough time for me. But perhaps it's just that... I'm such a Mystery Road purist. Mm. It just felt like a sequel. Well, you see, I, I am as well, and I, I didn't watch Mystery Road a- again, but I saw it twice when it was released in the, in the cinemas here. It just had that kind of effect on me. And I, I got the same buzz from Goldstone. I, I got the same kind of slow burn of tension and mystery and incredible grief about the, the underlying themes of what's going on here, which we'll, no doubt we'll talk about, and then the incredible tension and... and 
burst of action towards the end and I just felt so satisfied by this film and and I remember at the time Mystery Road had a few detractors saying it felt too pulpy some of the the, the plot points and dialogue and characters were pulpy but that's part of what really worked for me and it's what worked for me in Goldstone as well this is working in the framework of a Raymond Chandler S detective story and I, I like the fact that it moves through these conventions which is so worn out now but I'm um, putting them in this very particular remote Australian landscape and um i was so excited when i heard ivan sen was going to do genre films because his films before this have been either social realist or extraordinarily esoteric and art house you know you only see them at a festival um and and i just think he's his ability his command of visual style and the way he uses music the way he Goddamn uses light. Yeah. <laughs> to yes, see definitely. that in these genre films is really yeah. exciting. So, and um, silence. Just, I mean, he's yeah. really silence. good at knowing when to be quiet. And those extreme overheads, like they're the most extreme of extreme I'm aerial overheads. shiver down overhead my spine shot. again, just thinking, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but yeah. Yeah. I felt that they really reminded me of um, Indigenous dot paintings because you had this really disconnected community. I mean, the, the, the township was relocatables and then the only connectedness we get is from these overhead shots where you see all the lines coming in together and how the tracks and roads and the communities created through that basically. I think it's a really good observation because he uses that technique in Mystery Road as well and in this film there were shots where there were still overhead shots and I, I was just thinking how did you get that Static. And I found out there was a lot of drones used in this film. But um, really technologically advanced stuff to get a static aerial shot from that high in the sky. Um, and what I really enjoyed is in Mystery Road, that effect had this sensation of some kind of omnipotent, um far from benevolent eye looking down at these people who's indifferent to them where in this film it starts to change and there's this idea that there might be something good out there and there's Mm. even a line of dialogue hinting that there could be something watching over them there's something protective and that certainly fits in with this idea of it playing out a bit like an indigenous dot painting i think that that's a really beautiful observation that had that effect i find just kind of expanding the cultural frame of reference um there was a film made between these two films um a spanish film that we talked about last year called marshland that uses an almost identical technique of these yes. overhead drone shots. It's got a similar feel, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and look, I thought about Marshland a lot while watching Go- Goldstone. Goldstone was one, oh, sorry, Marshland was one of my favourite films last year. I just adored it. Yeah. Um, and it kind of got dismissed, I think, internationally. It won a lot of Goya awards, but it got dismissed internationally as a kind of um, a Spanish true, true detective. detective yeah. And that's what I was thinking watching this, you know, the, the relationship between the two cops. You know, it would be so easy, I think, if you came from this from a... A, a viewpoint where you weren't really kind of aware of the cultural politics of this film, that, that you could almost dismiss it as that, like, in the same way as, as Marshland, which was also connected really specifically to a kind of very long-term history. It was all built around the idea of missing girls. Yeah. It really, I mean, in a way, Marshland fits beautifully in with these films, even though they're from these really different cultures. But it's quite extraordinary that they use these same precise visual techniques. We had Mystery Road, then Marshland, and now Goldstone. Yeah. Um, I was wondering actually what you thought of um, the way that women are portrayed in it, because it seems like that young women are the ones under threat in these films in both of the in both of the films older women, not so much but it's kind of like that they get to this the that teen point and they're also sort of the great hope as well um, 
And I love that sort of character that came into it, Pinky. I love Pinky. (laughs) That was just, she was like a philosopher, the working girl philosopher who just came into town and, you know, she she just prophesied, you know, prophesied everything. And it was quite, it was almost magical realism in a way. She kind of worked as your generic hooker with a heart of gold, but also she was like a a character from Greek mythology, you know, Helena, you know, popping up or, or Artemis, oh, I'm forgetting my classical classical <laughs> mythology, but, but one of the gods popping up to steer the hero in the right direction. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I like that. That was a little touch that you you didn't really have in Mystery Road, so that was a little something new. And there. I love that it wasn't milked. She, yeah, she exactly. didn't stick around. It was just a little moment that was quite an exquisite, extraordinary moment. I think a lesser director would have really milked that, would have really kept that character in there, would have felt an obligation to do more. With her, but again, with Sen, more is less. I think he really mm-hmm. understands that. Mm-hmm. There's a real, certainly not a minimalist filmmaker, but he really understands silence and holding back. Yeah, and and all of this, I think, comes around the character of Jay. Um, I think mm. I think um, Aaron Peterson's performance in these films are just just extraordinary. I mean, the character alone. Um, I, I you know, I mean, it's I've already said you know I, I definitely preferred Mystery Road to Goldstone, and that's not a not not a dig at Goldstone at all. But that character, I could watch 500 films about this one character. There's so much to unpack yeah. in this guy. The question of, of gender, I mean, I think in a way it's in a way it's almost the easiest thing to latch onto because I think these films, because there's such dense politics going on about othering, like capital O, the other. So you, you, it's not just, and especially with Jackie Weaver working into this as well, so yeah. it's not just about boys versus girls. It's all about, um, it's much more intersectional. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, these um, these... Asian women that are brought in um, and, and of course in the first film in Mystery Road a lot of the action culminates around a Chinese restaurant um, so we have these really interesting different kind of cultures coming in and playing with each other and intersecting different levels of power, different age different different classes really complex politically which which is going on, stuff going on in this film and again in, just in the character of Jay himself, his trajectory isn't clear mm. you know you can't, it's not it, he's just so there's just so much depth and complexity to that character. I think he's just amazing. It takes a while to get up to speed with what actually has happened between Mystery Road and this film, and we, we don't actually know how much time has passed. But um, but you know we find out you know things have not gone well for him at all in the time between these two films, and he's kind of gone back to a state that he was in pre-Mystery Road, because in Mystery Road he was the reformed cop who had gone to the city and come back to his community, leaving behind the drinking and the violence and whatever problems he had. And he was sort of the ultimate outsider. He was from that community, but he'd been away too long and he'd been in white man's country. Very similar to the dynamic we got in the television series Top of the Lake as well. The cop had, had left and she'd come back and she was now the other. And in Goldstone, again, he's this outsider cop and um you know he, he doesn't even have the same kind of authority that he used to that the security firm around this mine are, are so militaristic and have so much more power than him but there's also this sense that this is another place where he has got a sense of home and this is another really interesting detail in the film there's a sense of belonging for him there as well he's got connections to these people but because of the time that's passed these people also see him as an outsider yeah this complexity is a really really extraordinary and then there's the the naive white cop who has to make and this is the character i found really fascinating the more i thought about and i think he's very much the identification point for a lot of audience members watching it he has to decide do i keep turning a blind eye because it's easy or do i need to take a stand because you know when it comes to issues of of race and abuse and, and violence it is that thing that it is really easy 
to mean well but do nothing about it. I mm. think the that, film really strips yeah. away the subtext there. It just yeah. becomes text because he just says things over and over again. Like, this is just the way that things things are. Yep. I, it's I, just mm-hmm. easy. Order is being maintained. I just, it just, I can't yep. change it. It's just the way that things are. I know it's terrible, but what are you going to do? Um, I mean, it's really, it really kind of goes pretty mm. full throttle, I think, on the ideological front yeah, on that stuff. Exactly. I mean, just, I, I don't think I've seen a film this year that has such a shocking opening sequence. I'm not going to go into details for what that is. Usually when we talk about spoilers, we talk about the ending, but I think the opening, the opening five minutes of this film are just extraordinary. Um, yeah, I mean, when there's yeah. a spoiler in the first five minutes of the film, it's <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. I mean, and, and so much of this film, maybe, maybe that was... And of course, you're talking about Aaron Peterson's mullet, aren't you? <sighs> Yeah, I thought so. Sorry, guys. Between that and Vincent Purcell, this is my show. Like, I'm sh- it's my time to shine. These are very gorgeous men. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, just a tip of the hat. I mean, you know, I think this is such a strong film uh, in terms of the story, but it just it also works as a, as a genre film for me. I think yeah. Mystery Road culminated in this surreal action sequence that kind of fits in with what could actually happen in the real world, the way they used the distance. You know, a, 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 bullet, a bullet gets shot and then you have to wait a few seconds for it to land. That's fantastic. I love that. There's it's a real, so good. There's Goldstone. a real Western feeling in Goldstone. I think. Um, I don't yeah. think Mystery Road had the... It, it was more kind of noir, yeah. um, more kind of hard-boiled, but I yeah. think Goldstone is veering, veering a little more towards the Western. It is, and you've got the, um, the, the, the two kind of disparate yeah. cops teaming up. and um, But again, there's a big action sequence at the end of Goldstone, which is kind of surreal but engaging in its own way. And it, it's the combination of this kind of dark violence and really everyday normal stuff. And I, don't, I, I really yeah. want to describe it all in detail, <laughs> but I, I won't. I, I just adore this film. What, uh, what I found interesting, though, a little a slight point, I don't, I don't know whether this was on purpose or not, but there was actually the kind of Uncle Tom character of the film was actually called yeah. Tommy in it. Oh, so wow. I didn't know whether that was it's on purpose. It's also the actor's name. Oh well, that might that actually may have been it more than anything. So, but it, it is he's the call. uncle. That's Tom. a really good observation. It's a good observation. Yeah, of the the West. I mean, we we even have lynchings in this without giving away who, what, where. Yeah. Um, and again, quite explicit. Like it's not a it's not a subtle no, metaphor. Like it's a pretty straight out. Not at all. And I think Aaron Peterson really got his thousand yard stare, squint, down pat. Perfect. He was he was Clint. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with Alex. I could see a dozen more films with the adventures of Jay just, Swan. Yeah, and just that character. Just put yeah. him in every. Can we just yep. like kickstarter to have Aaron Peterson play Jay Swan in every single Australian film? Every for the next single five film, years? even if it's just a cameo. I don't care. That just, should be an obligation. Yeah. He has to walk in and do it is something the law amazing. Of the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just look at a stare. Just like look at a kettle. Give a kettle death stares. Like anything. <laughs> I'm in. He could do it. I, I don't want to be in the same room when he does it. <laughs> you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Maggie's Plan is the new film by independent American filmmaker and I recently discovered daughter of playwright Arthur Miller. Rebecca Miller, uh, her 2002 film Personal Velocity screened in Melbourne earlier this year at ACME as part of their focus on Parker Posey retrospective. Maggie's Plan is a New York story starring Greta Gerwig as a young woman who is planning on having a baby via sperm donation but ends up falling for an academic played by Ethan Hawke who is married to another academic played by Julianne Moore. This is a comedy drama about the politics of love and relationships. The supporting cast in 
includes Bill Hader and Maya Rudolph. Alex, I gather that now you know Kathleen Hanna's in this film. It's going to be in your top ten. Yeah, I was I was pretty much coming in kind of pretty cool to this film actually, and now I'm like it, it could be the film of the year. Like it's it's the greatest film I've ever seen. <laughs> Should I be honest? Should I not just give a film a good pass because it's got Kathleen Hanna doing a kind I of? I think quirky... you have to be honest. So you you you, you weren't a fan. What, what was this, it? That you know what? This you film this? actually reminded me like the girl version of Listen Up, Philip, the Alex Ross Perry film that we looked at last year. Did you not like that though? I think I gave it the strongest review of anybody, but I liked it. Was, it, a was, lot. it was pretty heavy on the on the kind of hipster quirk, and I don't like using the word hipster because I think it's a word that that old people use. <laughs> but it just it, this was a bit too far on the quirk for me, and it was just I found none of the characters likable. I felt their privilege kind of gross, like these problems that they had. I didn't think were actually real problems. I found the cast across the board quite charmless. Mm. I, it reminded me why I didn't like Ethan Hawke. Something something a while ago... You don't like Ethan Hawke. I, something recently made me think I did like Ethan Hawke and then I remember, no, 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 this is why I don't like Ethan Hawke. Yeah, Hawk. I'm the same. I just thought Alex, he was... Yeah, we're is, bonding. We're over. bonding. Reality bites from that time and this feels like just the... Reality, this is like the, the progression of reality, reality bites. Reality still bites. <laughs> it still bites. It's, reality keeps on biting. Yeah. So yeah. It, I found it so predictably indie that it, it was kind of painful. Like I, I, I cringed every time they hit these, these cliched indieisms, you know. But, um, in saying that, I really, I, I really need to, be honest because I, I the irony is it's not lost on me that I'm saying this sitting in uh, doing a film review uh, in Melbourne's leading independent radio station <laughs> so I'm probably a character in this film that's what I'm saying and I don't like the mirror held up to my face How all dare right you, <laughs> yeah go away mirror I'm beautiful um, but uh, the indieisms I mean you guys feel like if you want to jump in here, please do. But first of all, Brooklyn. I like that you've got a list. This I've is got good. A list. You're more organised than any of the, the I did. A, I did a list because I'm new and I'm a girly <laughs> squat. Um, Brooklyn, not even Manhattan. I mean, Brooklyn is the place where all the cook kids are at now. So we have to have it in Brooklyn. We have to have someone who's in a fringe arts-based academic type of job. So she has a um, master's in arts management. Uh, that's Greta Gerwig. Week's uh, character, and she works at the new school. Um, Eames Furniture. She had an Eames chair and a fiddle leaf. Uh, fig plant. I have one myself, <laughs> so I noticed it. There were actually a couple of those. They were in a lot of the production design. Books as decoration and furniture. You don't just read books in indie films. You have them to prop up your coffee table or something like that. Um, Isn't that mentioned in the film as a joke? Is it? Well, maybe that's nice. Am I thinking nice. of something else? Uh, I can't remember. They Can you remember bond, it? They maybe? bond over it. I think there's like a sexy bonding over they book the up, books. I think they, they, they bond over the amount of books she has. Yeah, okay, yep. Yeah, yeah. What am I thinking of? No, never mind, sorry. And then, of course, warehouse living. It still goes on. The Fly started that, I'd like to say. The Fly started <laughs> warehouse living. Um, and Scar Music... It's not reggae music, it's ska music that you have in the India films. <laughs> and then an ironic music track, which is what we've just heard. So we, they play 
the Bruce Springsteen song and we have it come back as a refrain in a little acoustic French-Canadian It is band. very, very loyal to its genre of choice, this film. Mm. And I, if you like that, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's perfect, you know. <laughs> I'm going to try and defend aspects of this film because okay. I, I did admire a certain spirit and intent behind it. Um, I think... I think we're very much meant to to find these characters kind of amusing and pathetic, especially the Ethan Hawke character. And again, what's the name of this? I keep going. I don't know why I keep forgetting his name. He's the only theorist everybody anybody's Zizak. ever read. Zizak, yeah. yeah I mean, Zizak the fact that he got excited about seeing Zizak made me laugh out loud because every shit critic, that's the only theorist they ever read. Like, he's such... He's like Jamie Oliver to cooking. Did you check in the shit theorist? Yeah, yeah. He's actually the best band <laughs> name I've yeah. ever heard. I mean, she's, he's a fine theorist, but it's like... It's like are, you, are you, like, picking a fight on, on community, on I independent am, radio think. with Zizek? I love it. But he's become... It's, it's like people who, who say they're experts on food because they've read a Jamie Oliver cookbook. He's kind of become yeah. that. If you know, yeah. and, and I've got a lot of respect for Jamie Oliver. Um, <laughs> let's steer this back. So, his, yeah. His work on Hitchcock is terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'd avoid that. It's rubbish. Um, I've got kind of you're my, channeling. You're no, channeling. I was going to say. So uh, the I, I I was reminded of a Woody Allen film for at least the yeah, first half hour. Me of too. It, it me really too. had that almost. And it's kind of charming in earlier Woody Allen films anyway. Mm. That kind of stilted, slightly the early funny ones. The earlier funny mm. ones. The slightly over the top academic discussion, very frank talking about feelings, and almost in you know, a very civil way, people break up and fall in and out of love. But I think what really won me over in this film is Greta Gerwig, who is a who is an actor who plays a very strong... She's a very affected, stylistic actor who plays a version of herself most of the time, which I really, really like. Um, and a lot of actors do this and don't seem to get the same amount of flack as, as she does. Uh, older male actors, Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Walken, don't get criticised for it. Young female actors do. Um, but there, there are moments in this where her facade breaks down and we see some real emotional outpourings, which I found quite affecting and moving. And I also like the way this film looked at the politics of relationships where one person is pursuing career and their dreams at the expense of another and how that kind of can flip around. We see different versions of the relationship. And then ultimately you start to wonder... Is it always an act of somebody doing that to somebody else? Or in the case of Ethan Hawke, has he allowed that to happen to himself as an excuse for actually being a little bit shit? jerk, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So Um, I I think there was some some interesting, nice stuff in there. I think the idea, I I very much agree with you, the idea of this being a gender-flipped Woody Allen film. I think that that, that's that's really what it feels like. Like If you needed the one-line description of, of what this film was, it does do some really interesting stuff, I think, in its just conceptually with its um, reproductive politics, you know, the idea of, of motherhood and stuff that kind of is central to the central to the premise at least um, starts off quite interesting. I was really disappointed with the the twist at the end because I think it undoes a lot of the really good work that the politics of this film tried to establish. You mean the very 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 the end? very very, very end? end. Yeah, um, no, really really corny, really that obvious. Was coming a mile off, though. It was really yeah. really clear, and I was really hoping that she, that uh, Miller wouldn't do it because it just did such damage to the whole point of that she was trying to push through the film with that particular character and I thought it was just a bit lazy actually and Gerwig I think you, you know she's one of those character one of those actors that you either just really connect with her or really don't I don't not like her I do think that she has a really warm kind of presence she is like a human cardigan mm, um, mm. but to me she I, I she always reminds me of Chloe um Chloe Sevigny oh yeah she's like a really kind of she's like Chloe Sevigny um but kind of after a shower, like a nice clean version. Really? Like, I wouldn't usually... 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, am I being weird again? Does that oh, make any I, I sense? No, it does. I, I like them both a lot. Yeah, yeah. Clean or yeah, dirty. Yeah. I think um, she walks like a 65-year-old milkmaid, but, you know, <laughs> that's become a shtick. I think that in France Yeah, that's a kind actually. of cutie, little yeah, cutesy yeah. effect. Yep. They mentioned that. And she, she can carry a film. Let's, let's give yeah. it to her. She yeah. can carry a film, and that's no mean feat, you know. And she has carried several films now. This is not her first. She's um, she's established about three or four or five. Mm. Or yeah, well, she's Noah Baumbach's yeah. Uh, yeah, partner girl. romantically and creatively. Yeah. So they've yeah. done a lot of stuff together. I like this more than was it Miss America? Yes, I like this. Yeah. Miss I like this a lot more than Miss America. I yeah, think Miss America, like, and it? even the other one yeah. Baumbach did recently. I can't remember what that oh, was yeah, the one with Ben Stiller. It, yep, it was yep. just a bit flat. There, yep. there weren't many peaks or troughs. With this one, there, there were moments that made me sit up and take notice. Look, I, I had a similar feeling watching this too to the meddler the the susan sarandon film we yeah, talked about that's it a good call feels like a good indie film with a great central performance trapped in some fairly boring rom-com rom-com genre stuff i would love to watch this on a plane with a glass of wine like i think that's the i yeah, like, to me that's yeah, like the ultimate exactly. way to see this film exactly um i mean i i think i i reminded me a bit of, of a, again a gender flip listen up philip i think just because of that kind of the, the privileging of, of, of publishing and writing, you know, the name dropping of publishers, and yeah. it's like, who does this appeal to? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know who those kind well, of films are pegged at. The kind of voyeurism of bad behaviour. I mean, yeah. I yeah, I, I don't quite get the listen up Philip comparison because that was a character, a central character who was an unredeemable dick, and that was the the enjoyment of that film. Maybe that maybe the Ethan Hawke character kind of. Maybe that's where I'm drawing the line. I don't know. There was something about it that really reminded me of it, just tonally. Yeah. Um, and also in that kind of, you know, the, the precious writer, um, that kind of... True. And as a precious but, but writer, I know indul- my own kind. Like, but do you think the film indulged that or was casting a bit of a critical eye at that? Because I thought it was far more critical. I don't think it was indulging the persona of the precious writer. I think it was... Yeah, it, it, it was it was sat up. Oh, I, think, I think Listen Up, Philip did that as well. Yeah, like, I think, I think they both were, films yeah. um, to different degrees. I would have liked this film. I think a lot more if it wasn't Ethan Hawke. And I get that he was meant to be unlikable. But what I about think he just, um, um, Julianne Moore? What did you think of? Her? I, I normally love her, and I thought. I mean, she's been really praised for her comedic chops in this film, and I thought she was okay. She was kind of kind of broad, wasn't she? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, bit, a bit of a caricature. She was softened a bit Peter, as the film Peter meant. Sellers yeah. kind of sixties kind of. I've got a funny accent. Yeah, I felt, that, weird, I felt I that the accent thing was just to first of all probably make her a little bit more approachable with that Elmer Fudd sort of the WR speech mm. impediment. Otherwise, she was just so haughty and so unlikable. Um, but she's very much got that streepism thing going yeah. with the accents as well. And I think she they need to find some way of defining her, especially playing that sort of haughty role. But I could watch her read the phone book, to be totally well, honest. I, loved, I, just, I, mean, I, I turned for her. She, <laughs> I think she showed her um, her comedy chops in Maps to the Stars, which Cronenberg yeah, again, there you which, go, is a, Cronenberg. which isn't even a comedy. But I think she was, <laughs> she was absurd in that film. And, and I think she was kind of absurd in this film as well, but I just... Um, but it may have been the wrong film. She was film a little bit too over character. the top for me. Yeah. Just a little bit too over the top. Maggie's plan, I think the conclusion even from those of us who liked it, like me, is maybe see it on a plane... You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR.
Uh, tonight on the show, we discuss Tale of Tales, which is available on home entertainment, courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. Goldstone is on general release through Transmission Films, and Maggie's Plan is on limited release through Sony Pictures. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with my co-host Alexandra Heller, Nicholas, and for the very first time on Plato's Cave, we have been extremely happy to have with us Emma Westwood. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Emma. I've had such fun. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I didn't know that you were having such fun in here on a Monday. It's That's wonderful. Because of our serious, earnest tone. Yeah. Oh, you're, you sound so professional. No, the, the, the listeners have no idea. This is a fun show. Good night. This has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.